Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. This is the word of our Lord. We are going to begin a series today. I'm so excited about in Paul's letter to the Colossians. And in this letter, let me remind you that uh, we don't do sermon, we're not doing sermon notes like we normally do out front where you can grab and note things, but we have uh, little Colossian um, uh, journals that are available in Next Steps. So if you'd like to have one, my encouragement to you for using one is that later it becomes for you uh, just good, good resource when you are back uh, in that letter and studying it. I hope that you glean some things from our time together in the Word. And so we are uh, launching into that this morning. This will be our summer sermon series, Paul's letter to the Colossians. In 1979, a passenger jet carrying 257 people left New Zealand The point of the flight was to fly to Antarctica and there uh, to uh, descend and see the beauty of Antarctica. Unknown to the pilots, they had never flown this route before. There was a minor two-degree error in the calculations. The coordinates were off. And by the time they arrived to Antarctica, it placed them 28 miles off course. So when the pilot descended, once he had gotten to Antarctica, or the two of them had, they had no idea that towering at 12,000 feet was Mount Erebus, an active volcano. And they flew right into it. And all 257 people died. Only two degrees off were they. Experts in air navigation have a rule of thumb known as the one in 60 rule. It states that for every degree a plane veers off its course, it misses its target by one mile for every 60 miles you fly. This means the further you travel, the further you are from your destination. If you're off course by one degree after a foot, uh, you'll miss your target by two-tenths of an inch. Seems trivial, doesn't it? After 100 yards, 5.2 feet. Not huge, but noticeable. After a mile, you're off 92 feet. One degree is starting to make a difference. Travel around the equator, and you will miss your mark by 500 miles. The church at Colossae is off or in danger of being off, but by only a couple of degrees. The reality is that in the room this morning are those of you who are in the same boat. You're off by a degree or two. You can tell inside something isn't right. Uh, But you've not yet dealt with it. 
It is possible for entire churches to be off by a degree or two. It is possible for entire denominations of churches to be off by a degree or two. At first, it seems not to matter, but eventually it does. And so Paul writes the letter to the Colossians to address the drift, to deal honestly with what is potentially pulling them off course. And today I'll ask you, if you're on course, and if not, give you the opportunity to course correct before we leave this room this morning. Paul uh, doesn't waste time. In the first two verses are two phrases. They're prepositional phrases. And those prepositional phrases draw us in to what uh, matters most Uh, the case he'll build to the Colossians to bring them back on course. The first, he will say, is of Christ, and the second is in Christ. I am of Christ, he writes. Every letter written in Paul's day included an introduction, and this one is no different. It's where the sender identifies himself, uh, the receiver is identified, and then finally the sender has a message or a greeting. Paul's letter is the same. It includes those elements. I, Paul, uh, and Timothy, who is writing this letter with him, uh, the two of them are sending it at least. Perhaps Paul alone writes it, but the two of them are sending it. Those are the senders. It's written to people in Colossia, in Colossae, the Colossians, and we'll look at them in a bit more detail later. Uh, and there's grace and peace to you, he says. I could assume that most of you know this, but I won't. Paul used to be called Saul, and Saul um, was the man who was a member of the highest religious order in Jerusalem. He uh, was an ardent uh, follower of Judaism, meaning uh, the worship of God, not with Jesus Christ, but the worship of God. He was quite brilliant. He was educated under the best in his day. He appeared to come from a well-to-do family uh, because he had dual citizenship, both Jewish, uh, Jewish citizenship and Roman citizenship he had. So Paul was um, a remarkable man. He believed he was doing the right thing when he set out one day for uh, uh, the arrest of Christians. He had in his hand their arrest warrant, and he was on a road called Damascus when none other than Jesus Christ showed up to him. You say, Jerry, do you believe it was Jesus? Yes, I do because of the statement that was made to Paul, uh, to Saul at the time. While he's on the road, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, were the words. In Jesus' question, we discover two remarkable realities about God and about Jesus' continued work. Uh, Perhaps you've never considered this. When Jesus' followers are persecuted, he feels it. Now, 
I can't quite wrap my mind around that. And here's the reason. And so I'm preaching something I haven't quite figured out. But how is it that Jesus can be in heaven having completed the work of salvation that God sent him to do but still feel angst when his people suffer? But he does. I I don't understand that. I don't understand. Is heaven not quite heaven for him? Is he in that space feeling this pain? But we discover here that he does. He asks Saul why he's persecuting him. I know theologically that we as a church are the body of Christ. And so as his body, when the body hurts, uh, the head hurts too. Like the body does not hurt in isolation. I know that. When followers of Jesus are persecuted, he feels it. Uh, That then brings to mind the second reality. People on earth can hurt Jesus in heaven. I think it's in... I think it's in Hebrews where where it's called crucifying Jesus all over again when we continue to sin. It's as if we're crucifying him all over again. I I want you to see that there is a work of Jesus, his, his mediatorial work in heaven, even now for us, where he is not in some distance from you, but rather in the middle of your world. He sees uh, what you see. He feels what you feel. He knows what you're going through. There's something about what Jesus does for you today. The fact that uh, before you got out of bed, he prayed for you this morning is something that I'm afraid may not have occurred to you. Saul was struck blind, and when he was He was led to the home of a believer and there for three days until the scales fell off his eyes and he could see. And then he was was discipled. Um, Scholars range as to how long, uh, three years on the minimum, 10 years on the maximum. I lean toward the minimum side of that before he ever launched out into public ministry. And now he calls himself an apostle of Christ. The word apostle simply means one who is sent. If you look at all of the apostles, um, uh, there are key characteristics, and one of those characteristics of the apostles is that they were eyewitnesses. Paul was struck blind when he saw Jesus. He wrote about this to the Corinthians in chapter 15, verses 8, 9, and 10. And this is what he wrote there. He wrote about being an apostle. Last of all, as to one untimely born, speaking of himself, he, Jesus, appeared to me, Paul. For I am the least of the apostles, he writes, Unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. You see, it was Saul who sat by when Stephen, that deacon, was stoned to death and held the coats of those who cast the stones. Uh, Saul thought he was doing God's work when he was going against it. But I love this next phrase. 
But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul is saying, I I was called only by the grace of God. It wasn't anything I had done or could do. It was his grace. I was murdering Christians when I was called to be one. I was killing those who I became. And Paul would ultimately lose his life for that. He would die for his faith. As Christians, we really believe that Jesus showed up to Saul and he became Paul. And we, we really believe that if you come to faith in Jesus Christ, it will be because none other than Jesus through the Holy Spirit shows up to you. It won't be because you sign your name on a line saying, I've joined a church. It won't be because God looks at your resume and goes, you know, good leadership qualities. I I like what she's done so far. I think I could have them on my team. No, if you look across Jesus' team of uh, disciples, um, probably the only one who had a credible resume uh, turned and uh, committed suicide eventually, his name was Judas. You wouldn't have chosen those people to start any uh, world-changing movement. If you are here today and you are a Christian, it is by his grace, period. You must say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me hopefully has not been in vain that, that because of his grace, you work harder, right? Paul said, I worked harder than any of them to obtain his grace. No, but because of his grace, because I realized my lostness and, and, and because I became found by Jesus, I now work harder than any of them because of his grace toward me. Wow. Wow. I grew up so moral, so religious, dotting every I, crossing every T, doing everything just right. As a 15-year-old kid, I, I, I mean, I just had not done the things that some kids get into. But on a Tuesday night, went through a revival service with my dad. Dad wasn't preaching. Somebody else was. And that Tuesday night, I recall sitting on the second row as a 15-year-old good kid when God, by his grace, when Jesus made it abundantly clear that my morality wasn't enough, that my goodness wasn't really good after all, and that night I fell under conviction, as the old preachers say, uh, preachers say I fell under conviction. I realized my lostness, and Jesus Christ met me there. And when they gave the invitation, I couldn't wait, but walk down the aisle and kneel at that altar and give my life to Jesus Christ. It wasn't because I was a good kid. No, it, be- it was because I wasn't a good kid. It wasn't because I'd figured everything out. It was because I couldn't figure everything out. I needed someone. I needed someone who could in my place take my place in front of a holy God. Jesus had done it. He made me aware of it. And that night I was born again. If you 
come to God, it will be only because of that. No other reason, no other way. I went to an expensive undergrad school. I, I did so because I had a scholarship and uh, financial aid. Our family was poor, and that's how I got to go. Wofford College, Spartanburg, not super well-known. Some people call it Wofford, getting a bit confused. Today, if you go there, it will cost you $66,000 to go to Wofford today. So there I was. After year one, our tuition went up $1,000. I remember walking into uh, Mike Preston's office. He was the dean of students. And I said, Dean Preston, I worked there as a work study. And it was in the summertime. And I was working there in the summer. And when that announcement came out, I didn't have 1000 bucks, So I planned to transfer to App State. And I told him so. He said, don't do that so quickly. So he uh, came back to me in a few days, and he said, we found you $1,000. You just stay put. Okay. Next year rolls around. You think inflation's bad now? Tuition went up another $1,000 in a year. When it did, I looked at my budget. I didn't have another $1,000. What was I going to do? I loved Wofford. But I couldn't stay. So I went to Dean Preston. I don't know if I even went to him or if I just said it in the office. I said, I'm transferring to App State. I can afford it. That's what I'm going to do. It's just a few days later that Dean Preston approached me and he said, I've got a couple folks I'd like for you to meet. All right. So I remember that day walking across campus into the president's office. As I did, I walked by Rolls Royce. And I thought, I don't know if I'm meeting that guy, but I hope so. <laughs> and so I walked in, and there was a gentleman sitting there. His name was Boyd. I'd never met him before. We were sitting in a rather grand room in the president's office. He said, uh, I understand that, uh, that you really like Warford. I do. He said, I understand that you... Uh, are going to have to transfer. I said, I am. He said, tell me why I laid it out. He asked me quite a few questions. It was very conversational, super nice guy. It's just a few days later. I received a call. Dean Preston said, need to talk. Boyd, whom you met with, he was representing both himself and another gentleman. Both Wofford alums, the other gentleman, head of AAA in Florida. You have a full ride till you graduate. They don't ever want you to worry about returning to school. Do you know what? I stayed at Wofford by the will of Dean Preston, but by the means of Boyd and his friend. If you come to God, it will be by his will and by the grace of his son Jesus who made it possible. If you have come, you have come by the will of God and by the grace of his son Jesus.
but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Amen? Paul says, if you're of Christ, then you're in Christ. Verse 2, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. The church at Colossae was facing some serious opposition. And if you have your Bibles or you have your journals, which has the scripture in it, go to chapter 2, verse 8. There you'll see really, I think, only a hint of what the problem that became known by uh, scholars or termed by scholars, the Colossian heresy. Uh, Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. There we see one half of the problem. One half of the Colossian heresy. Let's find the second half. Uh, Skip down to verses 16 through 18 of chapter 2. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Scholars have organized the problem the Colossians faced into two broad categories. I've taken their broad categories and uh, provide for you this morning simple uh, terms and definitions. The first is legalism. Legalism is Jesus plus, and there's a blank, anything. Legalism. You see, evidently, they were Jews who insisted that in addition to Christ, uh, the people of Colossae should only eat certain foods. I, I think what happened is they walked by and smelled bacon frying and got mad. I'm kidding. But that would be hard to overcome. Or if you're from MacDowell County, liver mush. So uh, they, they, they said, no, 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 no. In addition to all of this, you must do this. And there was a list of things, and it had to do, according to the scripture, with food and drink, festivals, new moons, and the Sabbath. In other words, they went back to the Old Testament, extracted rules, and added those to what it meant to them to follow Jesus and said, it's Jesus plus those rules. That's legalism. How does legalism show itself today? Some of you, I'm looking around, I know your story, you came out of legalism. You sit here and you you feel like you can breathe finally because you have been taught and, and you're now growing in grace. And I'm thrilled for you. I am. I'm thrilled for you. I came out of legalism. I, uh, what I hadn't done by the time I went to college was way more significant than what I had because of the legalism in which I grew up. And it was very 
very much taught that it was Jesus plus all of those things you did or did not do. Uh, Perhaps that's your story, perhaps it isn't. But I'll tell you what a prevalent story is today. There's theological legalism. Jesus plus Calvinism equals Christianity. No, it doesn't. Jesus plus Arminianism equals Christianity. No, no. This week, in the last two weeks, I've been on the phone or visited with three different pastors, all of different denominations. None of us believe alike, but all of us love Jesus and preach Jesus and want to see Jesus glorified and want to see people saved. That's the church, amen? That's the church. How about this one? Jesus plus Republican equals. Jesus plus Democrat equals. Political legalism. If you don't dot your eye across your T like I do, not sure that you know Jesus as you should. Jesus plus anything. Uh, The second is pluralism. Uh, Pluralism, my simple definition is Jesus and. Jesus and anything. Meaning Jesus is good and so is that. So let's group it together. Um, When we go to Senegal, Africa on mission to serve there, uh, we have a bus driver. His name is Mongoni. And Mongoni is... uh, He's a cool guy. He's Muslim. He has a prayer rug and he'll prayer mat and he'll put that down and pray. So he worships Allah then, right? But in addition to that, just in case Allah doesn't come through, he has baby shoes hanging at the front of his bus and a cow tail on the back. Why? Because baby shoes keep you from wrecking and a cow tail keeps somebody from running into you. Now, I wish I'd known that. My insurance would be cheaper. Uh, It would be much, much better for me and everybody else. So for Mongoni, he doesn't know it, but he's a pluralist. He believes in Allah and Allah and Allah and superstition. They come together to form his religion. Probably the most prevalent pluralism today is a cultural accommodation. I believe in Jesus and the cultural shifts of the time. I'll just go with them. And Jesus, he's good with that stuff, either because he never mentioned some of it, whatever it may be. uh, that's, That's how we get Jesus and pluralism. Was the danger to the Colossian church, and it is still today. So what does it mean to be in Christ? I think it's so abstract. It just seems a little weird to say, hey, I'm in Christ. No, you're in this building. You're in your car. You're not in Christ. But it's mentioned all throughout the New Testament. We could go all over the New Testament to find it, but I thought it made most sense to find what Paul said in Colossians. 
So if you've got your journal, you've got your Bible, you want to you like reference these out ahead, I'm going to give them to you, and I'll try not to go too fast. To be in Christ, verse 22 of chapter 1, means to be holy and blameless. Wow. Say me? Well, him. He is. So whatever comes at you comes at him, and he's holy and blameless. Hmm. Verse 27 of chapter 1, it means Christ is in you. Well, then that just blows our minds too, doesn't it? How can I be in him and him be in me? I don't know. I believe it. But it means he's in you. Verse 28 of chapter 1, it means you grow. To be in Christ means you grow. So let me tell you this little crazy picture is in my head of this. Have you ever seen those Russian nesting dolls? Right, you, you have a tea tiny one and then a little bit bigger one and then a little bit bigger and, and then it gets up to a big one. And if you just look at the big one, you never know that the tea tiny one is in there somewhere. So here's how I imagine the Christian life is that when you are saved, when you're born again, you're that tea tiny little nesting doll. And Jesus, sorry, Jesus is the big one. And that all of life is growing up into the big one. That's how I picture that. It's like all of life is that. If you could take out just a whole set of little nesting dolls, maybe you could put dates and times when you went from here to here to here to here, but that's the Christian life. It means you grow, verse 28. Uh, Two, three, you have access to endless treasures. Access to endless treasures. We, we don't even know what they are yet. We've, you, you've hopefully been doing some excavating, but there's more. There's always more of Jesus. Uh, there will always be more of your video game. Eventually you'll win or get mad and quit. But there's always more of Jesus. There, there will always be more money because eventually you'll die. But there will always be more of Jesus. When you get to heaven, he'll be better than you ever thought. He'll be grander than you ever thought. He'll be more amazing than you ever thought. And I'm convinced that all of heaven is a gradual growth into who he is. I don't think we get there and we arrive. I honestly think that the joy of heaven is having other aha moments all throughout eternity because Jesus is so infinitely amazing and wonderful and awesome that we will spend all of eternity deep diving into who he is is. I think that's heaven. Verse 10, you're filled. To be in Christ, Paul says to me, you're filled. Verses 11 and 12, you are buried and made alive with him. You go with him into the grave and you come out alive and are able to live a brand new life. Ah, verse 13 of chapter 2, you're forgiven. To be in Christ is to be forgiven. And then 3-3, I love this. You are hidden like that little nesting doll. You're hidden. If something comes at you, it comes at him first. Wow. Do you know what? I'm afraid some of us are like the Pilati brothers, P-L-A-D-I living in a cave in Budapest because they were so impoverished. That is, until attorneys did what they were tasked to do, which is to look until they found them, to let them know that they were heirs. They had inherited $6 billion. (laughs) That's hilarious. 
You're a cave dweller. Billionaire. But are you? Are you a cave dweller? Billionaire. Who has little idea of your inheritance. And Jesus who saved you. We're going to sing a song today to end our time. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. During this time, no one looks around. This is a clear invitation for you to respond.